I want to look at the scripture passage today. It's from Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. And this is what it says. It says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Indeed, rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person someone might actually dare to die. But God proves his love for us in that while we, were still, while we still were sinners, Christ died for us. Much more surely then, now that we have been justified by his blood, will we be saved through him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more surely, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life. But more than that, we even boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, we ask that today your gospel, your good news, would penetrate all of our hearts and that we would leave here with songs of praise and thanksgiving on our lips, not because of who we are and what we've done, but because of who you are and what you've done for us all. And we pray for this and trust in this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is a bit of an odd Sunday. Uh, it's a bit of an odd Sunday in terms of planning because we plan really, really far in advance. We like to work pretty far ahead in terms of our worship planning. And this Sunday was uh, kind of a, uh, a standalone Sunday in terms of our planning. Next week, Advent begins, and it's going to be an awesome Sunday, and we start the journey towards Christmas, and it's just a great time of year here. So we know that that's starting next week. Um, and last week, James Lee was here, and I hope that many of you were here and got to experience that. James is a pastor of New Covenant Fellowship. We had a pulpit exchange uh, as we're in a conversation and have been in a conversation on the topic of race and faith. And so James was here. He preached in all four of our worship services. I, last week, got to preach at New Covenant and to preach in their one worship service, and that was nice. Um, uh, he talked to me on Sunday afternoons. He goes, man, I was exhausted. I'm like, I know. I feel great today. <laughs> so we are going to kind of look into maybe doing something like that every other week with other churches and just pulpit exchanges. And the only requirement is one service. It's the one that, uh, that we'll be going to. So, but it was important. It was important that James was here. Um, but this Sunday kind of stood by itself. It's Christ the King Sunday. It's the Sunday that ends the church calendar year. And so I want to take a few minutes today to talk a little bit about this king whom we worship. This king who we sing to and pray to. And I want us to think um, a little bit about the narrative of the gospel in our lives. I know John in his baptism, the baptism day, was talking about the different narratives that are in our life. The narrative of the gospel. Because I'm not in any way convinced that that is the primary narrative that directs most of our lives. I think we know it should be, and I think in church we feel like we're supposed to say it is, but I'm not certain that it always is. I know it's not true for me. I believe that there are many narratives in our culture that tell us what's important and how we find meaning and how we find worth and how we figure out what our lives are supposed to be about. And I believe there is also one dominant narrative that has become so real for so many of us that we just see it as normal. We don't even see it as a cultural narrative, as an option before us. And it's that narrative that I want to describe today. I'm going to describe it actually through the words, using the words of David Brooks, who's a columnist, uh, also was a college professor. He gave a speech about a year ago. And in this speech, he describes this culture, this narrative, which is that we find meaning 
And we find our worth in many ways through our achievements, through our success, through our resumes, through our GPAs, through our job descriptions, through our titles. And it's that narrative that is so normative, we just think it's how life works. When these words come up, I want you to hear these words from David Brooks. And there's a a long passage. But I want you to hear these words and, and, and just don't look up there real quick. Don't look up there real quick. Don't look up there real quick. I want you to listen to these words for how they describe you. Not your neighbor, not your spouse, not your boss, not the person you don't like from high school. I want you to describe how this narrative influences you. Because it does. We're either living into it in some ways or we're rebelling against it in some ways. But this narrative is driving much of what's going on in all of our lives. Okay. This is what he says. He says, I've lived much of my life in the secular culture. And it is an achievement-oriented culture. It starts really early and it's kind of crushing our kids. If you go to the elementary schools in my local neighborhood, you see the kids coming out at 3 in the afternoon. They've got those 80-pound backpacks on. If the wind tips them over, they're like beetles, sort of stuck there on the ground. They get picked up from school by creatures I call Uber moms, who are highly successful career women who have taken time off to make sure all their kids get into Harvard. You can tell the Uber moms because they actually weigh less than their own children. They've got little yoga mats stapled to their hips, and during pregnancy, they're taking so many soy-based nutritional formulas that the babies plop out, these gigantic 14-pound toothless defensive linemen just boom. Uber dads, who are maybe even more performance-oriented than moms, cutting the umbilical umbilical cord, flashing little Mandarin flashcards at the kids, getting them ready for Harvard, and these kids turn into the junior workaholics of America. By the time they've applied to schools, they've started six companies, cured three formerly fatal diseases, and they're playing obscure sports like frisbee golf. When I ask my students, what are you doing during spring break? It's like, you know, I'm unicycling across Thailand while reading to lepers, that sort of thing. They have tremendous faith in themselves. In 1950, the Gallup organization asked high school seniors, are you a very important person? And at that point, 12% said yes. They asked the same question in 2005, and 80% said, yes, I'm a very important person. Americans score 25th in the world in math, but if you ask Americans, are you really good at math, we're number one in the world at thinking we're really good at math. (laughs) Time Magazine asked Americans, are you in the top 1% of the nation's earners? 19% of Americans believe they are in the top 1% of American earners. So we have a lot of self-confidence, we do it ourselves, and we have a great desire for fame. Fame used to be quite low as a value. Now fame is the second most desired quality in young people. They did a study. Would you rather be president of Harvard or Justin Bieber's personal assistant? By a three-to-one margin, people would rather be Justin Bieber's personal assistant than president of Harvard. Though to be fair, I asked the president of Harvard, and she would rather be Justin Bieber's personal (laughs) assistant. So listen to this. So this is an achievement culture. A culture of people striving and trying to win success. That should sound very familiar. Let me tell you and describe to you how normative this culture has become for us. Two weekends ago, I was out of town. I was out of town at a wedding. I was officiating my stepbrother's wedding in Princeton, New Jersey. 
And while I was there, I had uh, all these people from like different parts of my life and a number of people from Atlanta who knew my stepbrother uh, who had come to this wedding that I hadn't seen in years, people that I knew from growing up in Atlanta. And so it was great to sort of see them. And this one family, right before the ceremony, were kind of rushing in and they were a little late and we were ready to walk in. And they saw me and they're like, Thomas. And I, you know, I was excited to see them and gave them a hug. And it's awkward to try to have a conversation 60 seconds before you're about to officiate a wedding. And so, I, but I wanted to, I was like, how are you guys doing? Uh, and their son, who I had known, I said, you know, how's your son doing? And what they said was, they said, he's doing great. He just graduated from University of North Carolina with honors, played water polo there, he did wonderful, was captain of the team. He uh, applied, he wants to be a sports writer, applied for an internship at Sports Illustrated. Hundreds of people applied, they only accepted three. He got one of the internships, he's doing great. And I said, that's awesome. And they said, how are you guys doing in Austin? How are you know, Beth and Miriam and Hannah? And I said, they're great. Let me tell you how the kids are doing in school. Let me tell you the activities they're in. Let me tell you about a little bumper sticker we can put on of you know, student of the month and all this other kind of stuff. And then they're like, that's awesome. You guys are great too. And we gave each other's hugs and we left. It's weird. It's weird, and yet it's so normal to us we don't even see it anymore. That when we have 60 seconds to tell people how we're doing, we give a 60-second elevator speech of our resumes or our kids' resumes or our grandchildren's resumes. And just so that we're clear that we're not making fun of anyone outside of this room, I promise you that exact same scenario happened today lots and lots of times out on the patio this morning here at Covenant. The exact same thing which is let me tell you how amazing life is. And as David Brooks would say, that is because we have a default of a cultural narrative that makes us feel important. There's a reason that when we first introduce ourselves to people, one of the first questions we ask is, what do you do? Do you know in most cultures around the world, they don't ask that. We do, and we think it's a throwaway question, but the reason we ask it is because if they say, oh, I went to school here, or this is my job, or this is where I live, we make a lot of assumptions about people based on this normative cultural narrative that our identity and even our meaning can be found in what I do, in what I achieve, or what my family has achieved. We've actually even commandeered Christianity under this narrative. And this is what I mean by that. Christianity has been made by many of us to fit that narrative success. As many of you know, it's been impossible not to know this, really. Uh, there are a lot of presidential candidates for the Republican nomination for president, right? One of them is Donald Trump. And I'm not here to talk about politics. But Donald Trump gave a fascinating interview as he was running for president. And he said, they asked about his faith, and he said he was a Christian. And then, not only was he Christian, he said he was a Presbyterian. So my ears sort of you know, went up. It's like, oh. And in the interview, he was asked the question, what confessions or repentance things do you repent of in worship? And he said, none. None. And when asked why, the reason he said is, is that religion teaches me how to make moral decisions. And so it teaches me how to make good decisions versus bad decisions, and it's taught me to make good decisions, and therefore I don't have anything to confess. Now, Donald Trump can be a lightning rod, and I am not here to, to trash him. I think he actually articulated something that is very prevalent in the culture David Brooks is talking about here, the success-oriented culture that says religion, even, is meant to help me improve as a person, to become more successful. 
At the same wedding I attended two weeks ago, I met this guy, wonderful guy, very warm, very hospitable to me, very successful in business, ran a hedge fund in Manhattan, uh, talking to me, has three great kids. We sat next to each other at the rehearsal dinner. And towards the end of dinner, he looked at me and goes, so you're a pastor? And I said, yeah, you know, you know I am. He goes, I don't mean to be offensive by this, but you don't really believe that stuff, do you? I said, why would that be offensive? No, no, like, he goes, you know, I mean, it helps us to become better, but I mean, you don't actually, like, think Jesus actually died, right? Like, and that Jesus rose again. Like, intellectual people don't actually think that's real. I said, no, no, I, I, I really do think it's real. I really think that's, that happened. And he goes, you know, I've just never, I've never felt the need for church. I've never felt the need for Christianity. I said, why is that? And he goes, because compared to a lot of people I see in the news, I think I'm a pretty good person. Compared to a lot of the broken things I see going on in the world, I feel like I'm a pretty moral person, and therefore, I kind of don't need it. That might sound different to some of us, but in a culture that what David Brooks is describing, that is actually normal. Because religion has become dominated by the cultural narrative of achievement. No matter who you are, no matter what age you are, no matter what stage in life you are, you need to know that this culture of achievement impacts and influences us more than any of us would probably care to imagine. All of us in this room are influenced by this. And it's important because this cultural narrative is so strong that you and I are able to see what are flat sides to it. Because they're very real. And because this idea that you can achieve enough to find fulfillment is a mirage. It is an illusion that we mean to be able to name. One of the things that's a problem about this is that it takes and it is naive. And I bet a lot of us struggle with this. It is naive about human nature. There is no such thing as being able to discipline ourselves and become really good people. It's not possible. And rather than giving you an example of the world where that happens, let me share with you from my own life. One of the things I pray for, and I've shared this in different ways here at Covenant, one of the things I pray for every single Sunday, genuinely, is Lord, help me to be a less self-centered person than I was this week. And I bet I'm not the only one here that ought to be praying that prayer. Because I can be amazingly self-centered in my marriage, with my kids, with all of you, with the staff of this church. I can see things the way I like to see them. I'm going to preach four times today, and then I'm going to go home, and my kids are going to be there, and Beth's going to be going, you know, had the kids all morning, got them in church, and they're singing in choir, and I'm kind of tired. And you're like, what? I am too, Right? And it's going to be like, I know what the scriptures say. I know it says that I'm called to love and serve her and my children. But I promise you this afternoon, there's going to be a significant part of me that just isn't going to want to. And there has never, ever been a Sunday I haven't prayed for that. And there has never, ever been a Sunday when I have walked in here and said, I did it! One whole week of not being self-centered! One whole week where nobody had to live with it. That's not true. The truth of your life 
And the truth of my life is that we are people who every single day do what we know is wrong and fail to do that which we know is right. We are people who live in a world where it is a wonderful emotional moment to look at the ills that are happening globally and say, let's just all get along. It sounds like a great idea. Unfortunately, human history in every single culture has shown us that the moment we as people start thinking we're improving and morally moving in a good direction, we're about to walk off a cliff. And we live under this idea that if only these people were in charge or if only this change happened, then everything would be better. It's a a feel-good moment emotionally that will always let us down. Because you and I, and I don't know all your names, but you and I are more broken than that. It creates us for also as competitors against each other. I promise you this is also true. When I gave the little story about the guy who graduated with honors from UNC and got this internship, every person here at some level sat there and goes, how do we measure up with that? Right? How do we compare? That happens all the times in our little patio conversations, right? John Wasson gave me a quote this week when we were talking about that. This is by German theologian Karl Barth. Karl Barth says that when we start by confessing our virtues, we create competitors. That means when we give the resume speech about what we've accomplished, we at some level are setting ourselves up in competition with the person we're talking to. And you're like, well, I don't mean to, but that's what's happening. But Bard goes on to say that when you and I change that and start not by confessing our virtues, but by confessing our sins, that is the moment we can truly become brothers and sisters. We are set up in this culture to compete with each other. I know we don't like admitting this in church, but you know those things when you see on Instagram or Facebook when people post it on vacation, it's like, best vacation ever. And this amazing photo of this like dream experience they've had. And you look at that and feel somewhat insecure because your vacation, if you were able to take it, wasn't the best vacation ever. That you look at that and it starts this feeling of, uh, of insecurity. And then when you find out six months later that that family has some problems, there's this teeny little piece of us that we don't like to admit out loud that's kind of like, there you go. Right? It's true, and it's not good, but it's there in all of us. It sets us up as competitors. Do you know that you can achieve every dream and goal that you set your mind to? You can achieve every dream and goal, and if that is the extent of what your life is about, you will never find meaning. You will never find purpose. The way some people discover the, 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 the good news of Christianity is by hard things, and there have probably been people here who have had hard things go on in their life, and that brings you to to God. But probably just as often, and this is the true of, of my story, is that what brings you to Christianity is things overall going really, really well, and looking around going, I don't see anybody who's all that happy. This idea of achievement, finding meaning and success is an illusion. It's a mirage. And when we achieve and don't find it, we actually believe that if we achieve something else, maybe that's the magic formula. This narrative is driving all of us in different ways. But the good news is that it's not the only narrative out there. It's not the only narrative that's out there. 
Now, we as Christians are not anti-success. We're not anti-achievement at all. But rather, we don't see it as the foundation of meaning for ourselves. Because we start from an inherently different position. In an achievement-oriented culture, you've got to start with the, what is a lie, which is you can do anything you set your mind to. It's not true. That is absolutely an untrue statement. I have tried to be able to dunk a basketball since I was like seven, and it has not happened, and it is not for lack of trying. And more importantly, I have tried every week not to be self-centered. And I don't think the reason I haven't achieved it is because I don't really mean it or I'm not trying hard enough. There is a narrative that Paul says that doesn't begin with strength and accomplishment, but he says in verse six here, we start from our weakness. We start in a world that is constantly projecting success, constantly making you feel inadequate, constantly making you feel that you haven't done enough like the other people that you see around you. Paul says, no, we start from a place of honesty and truth, which is that we are broken people, which is that we are selfish people, which is that we do exult when our competition struggles, that is we are people who see things and fail to do what is right and always give in in different ways to do doing that which we know is wrong. Paul says that is the story of all of our lives and that this truth and the gospel and the good news is not when we project success, but when we sit there in our weakness and go, wow, this is actually the real story that I don't want to let anybody know about that plagues me and that, and that creeps away at me and then whispers to me in the dark about who I am and where my worth comes from. And Paul says that when you go there to your broken places and sit in it, that the good news can be heard because God says you are loved. That God says that Jesus came into the world not to give you a recipe for success in your life, but by bringing you when you're on your knees in brokenness and saying you have value and worth not because of what you've accomplished, but because Jesus declares it is so. That the good news of our faith is that we've been reconciled to God and that when God looks at you today, he doesn't see a broken person, a hurting person, a person who's lied, a person who's let other people down, a person who doesn't have it all together. That through your faith, when God looks at you today, he sees the righteousness of his son Jesus that has been credited to you. What else do you need to feel successful? What else do you need to make you feel worthy? God says you are. There are moments when we clap in worship. The children are singing at 11 o'clock. They're getting clapped for all the time right now, right? When they sing. There was a moment in the baptism here when we clapped and celebrated. There's moments that we clap. But in our services, there's something we do every week that if we paid attention to it, would make us stand and applaud every single Sunday. And that is when, in, through music or through prayer or through songs, when you hear that you are not worthy. And then the words come, in Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. 
that when you hear those words, if you're being honest about your brokenness, every single week we should stand up and just start doing this. Every single week we should just be going, wow, did anybody hear that? That I finally was able to be honest and take my masks off and be who I am in all of my brokenness and in all of the pain I bring to other people and in all the ways I get stuff wrong. And God just said, you are wiped clean and that you have been forgiven. We should just go, that's the high point right there. Does anybody hear what I'm saying? Because it's the best thing you'll ever hear in all your life. You know what, it's, it's good news. It's gospel. What is the gospel? What's the heart of it? We have a quote here from Tim Keller. He says, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. All of us. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. You want something to be thankful for this week? Go there. It's better than anything else you're going to celebrate on Thursday. It's better than best holiday ever. <laughs> it's right there. So how do you sit in that this week? This is what we'll end with. You're going to see up on the screens or in your orders of service. I don't know where it is. Yeah. So process. I want to invite you to sit in. The good news is you don't have to do anything to accept it. This is a gift that's just given to you. You have it. You are, you are righteous and holy in God's eyes. But to sit in that, we need to get back to this rhythm of confession. And so every day this week, you're going to be invited just to take 15 minutes of alone time. You're going to need a Bible, a piece of paper, and a pencil. And you're going to say a prayer that God would still your mind and heart and hear your confession. Next slide. You're going to read Psalm 32. Read it slowly and prayerfully. And after you read it, just write down on the paper the things that you need to confess. What secrets are you keeping? Where have I contributed to conflict with others, which all of us have? And rather than knowing what's their fault in the conflict, how have I contributed to it? How have I not shared generously with those in need? Where have I done what I know to be wrong? Where have I failed to do what I know to be right? Just write it down. Just write it down as you go. And then after you write your list, read Psalm 51. Read it slowly and prayerfully that says you are the righteous, forgiven people of God and take that piece of paper and throw it away because it is now no longer your identity. You have a choice of what narratives will guide your life and tell you what's important. The gospel is the only one worthy of giving yourself to. Hallelujah. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, we give you the gratitude. We give you honor. We give you thanks. We give you praise because you are the perfecter of each of us. That we can be honest with you, even in our world that tells us we have to project a lie, which is our perfection and our success that this is the place we can be real and honest and open and find what true value is, which is that you look at us just as we are and say, you are loved. You are valued. You are accepted. May that declaration fill our hearts and lives with meaning 
and with the value that we all have because you declare it to be so. May that good news sweep us off our feet this day and always. And we pray this in your name. Amen.